shows. So it's it's pretty remarkable. Gotcha. I like the activity. I'm Welcome, everybody. Nice to see you all. Welcome back. Not quite <laughs> a, a large group as last time, but that's all right. Um, Pietro and I decided to shift the dates a little bit uh, just because I think a, a weekly tasting is uh, logistically can be a little uh, <laughs> a little difficult uh, given given what we're all dealing with on a daily basis. So thank you all for sticking with us. Um, yeah, definitely. Thank you. Yeah, for sure. Um, Sangiovese is, I believe, in two weeks, and then following that, another two weeks will be Sagrantino. I think I have that right. You're right. Mm. Yeah. The We'll, we'll solidify the dates shortly here. Sure, sure. Um, but we'll give you guys plenty of lead time. Um, I've got some great wines right now in-house, and I'm going to find a beautiful Chianti from uh, uh, Castellina in Chianti, a really nice producer. Um, and, uh, and we're going to have a lot of fun with San Giovese, so uh, we'll gear up on that. Um, anybody have any uh, rosé stories or memories of rosé that struck them in their lives before we get started? Anything that... Uh, Anything that speaks to you? I have a request. Yes. What's uh, up? For the next one, can you send out a uh, the food pairing recommendations earlier? Sure. Uh, that'd be amazing. That way I can actually plan what. Absolutely, Dana. <laughs> Thank That's you. That's a good idea. All right. House three days early. That's on the. Yeah, that's oh, that's all right. Right. <laughs> oh, I'm trying to mute us so we don't disturb you. But yeah, that's great. That'd be amazing. All right. I will send an email out three days before. Thanks. All right. Thank you very much for that request. I love it. Um, and I'll, uh, I'll keep that in mind too. I'll try and uh, come up with a whole dish if I can. <laughs> um, I, I work with an Italian chef by the name of Alessandro Campitelli. Um, Roman chef who's here, who's doing private meals and um, and delivering them into your homes and such. Um, and uh, I can uh, I'll, I'll reach out to him and see uh, if he's got some ideas. Um, if I if he had any interest in it, or it, rather, uh, I think he probably does have an interest. But if he put together kind of a dinner, would anyone be interested in receiving a dinner pairing with this? Raise your hand if you are. Definitely. All right, Dana, we've got oh, you. Probably. Probably, Mary. All right, no worries. Like that. I just want to get a feeling. Uh, see how it is. Um, we might put together something with Sanja Bay. One of the other. Would that be good? <laughs> yeah, you, you, you might have a, a little party here. Yeah, it may be more antipasti, first course driven. It might not be a full, that's, whole that's meal. Um, but anyway, all right, all right. So good request, Dana. Any uh, any any memories of rosé? Come on, there's got to be one out there. I have one from Morocco, but I don't want to take up the airspace here. Oh. I I think the first rosé that I decided I liked and I told you about it was I was at um, what is that um, that restaurant in San Francisco? She has three stars, but we're Petit Cren. Petit Cren, yeah, I'll tell you. Petit Cren, Petit Cren, and. Um, we ordered a rose. I, I think my friend wanted a rose, and I'm, you know, I'm kind of like, you know, it wasn't big rose, rose, and we, and it was that Sicilian rose. I think I told you about it. I believe um, it could have been. I've forgotten Brown the guy's Henry. name. 
Man Etna or Vittoria? It was Etna. And I really, really, really enjoyed that. I was like, wow. Right, yeah. I mean, it's anywhere on the island. They make rosé kind of everywhere, but... Yeah. Oh, oh wonderful. I'm, I, Etna rosé is some of my most fun... Some of yes. my, uh, yeah, most pleasurable experience drinking rosé is, mm. is from Mount Etna. Um, I actually tried to get one for this uh, tasting, one from a producer by the name of Calabretta, but I couldn't get my hands on it. Um, so we're in Campania, in Apulia, and of course, mm-hmm. Lake County. Um, with this tasting. <laughs> Any other thoughts on rosé? I have a rosé story, which is... Can you hear me? I, I, I can, yeah. So I'm that I sort of look, I love rosé myself, but I think I do have that uh, feeling that some people do that it's looked down upon. And um, so I work with a publisher and we do a lot of Oh, I'm, I'm so sorry to interrupt you, I, but I think the audio is slurring a little bit. I, it's, it's a little hard to hear. And so we were having, I'll give it, I don't know if you know, everybody knows Jacques Lepin connection. I'll save it for another time. <laughs> no, <laughs> it's just a little hard to hear you guys. I'm so sorry. That's okay. We're in the backyard, so I think the sound is getting uh, getting absorbed. But I can hear I, you now. Say that I thought for sure we were serving him lunch or I was there at the lunch and I just happened to be standing by the wine and Jacques said oh could I have some wine and I thought for sure he'd want a red and he said no no the rosé and I just felt so affirmed and from then on whenever <laughs> rosé I just tell them that I actually poured a glass for Jacques Lepin and that they can oh. say rosé where was where did that happen Actually, right here at Market Hall, we did a book signing with uh, a title that he had that came out uh, in 2018. Um, It was really fantastic. He's a a sweetheart, and uh, it was really fun. Oh, I love it. I love it. Good story. Good story. Anyone else? So I have a couple. Two, my first memory of appreciating rosé. I was in living in San Luis Obispo and we were in Central Coast and um, friends came from San Diego to come visit and wanted to have rosé and they have a little picnic so we picked up some strawberries and some other stuff and just sat at a picnic table. I couldn't tell you what varietal it was uh, but it was a warm day and it was so refreshing to have with strawberries and just hang out mm-hmm. outdoors and enjoy. So I was really turned on to rosés. That was probably in 2000, so or 2001, so about 20 years ago. And then uh, the other one is just from this last weekend. I was oh. with friends, social distance, visiting for a brunch, and we had a bottle of champagne or sparkling wine from Mount Vesuvia. Mount Vesuvia. Oh. And, and it was so amazing. It was We'd been saving it, saving it, saving it. We, we had a beautiful little brunch, all kinds of sweet and savory flavors, and an amazing little bottle of it champagne. It was a rosé? It was a rosé. Wow. That's beautiful. Oh, my yeah. God. Sparkling awesome. rosé from Mount Vesuvius. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds pretty dangerous. Yeah, that's special. <laughs> <laughs> two, two ladies drinking it. It was awesome. 
<laughs> Loving these stories. But it's funny. I, I, I think there are, there are wines that you can talk about where, where what's in the glass just kind of is what captures you. And for some reason, rosé, and I also get, I also consider this with some sparkle, some sparkles. It is kind of attached to a memory or a place. I mean, when I drink a good rosé, for me, my first rosé that kind of made me, you know, I was drinking it and went, whoa, what's that? You know, my first rosé was uh, funny. It wasn't Morocco. It was Tunisia um, in this uh, little city outside the, the, the main or this little neighborhood outside the main city um, called Sidi Bou Said. And it's a blue city. And uh, I drank a rosé from there that I just didn't expect. Um, and I was, this was before I was a sommelier. So this was pre-Somme. So this was Paul, busy manager. <laughs> uh, it just it took my breath away. It was gorgeous, and uh, and and so that was my ex my ex first experience with the rosé. But I often find that when I've tasted rosé that I've experienced in Italy and in France here, the experience is not quite the same. Um, I really think it's it has to do with you know being you know proximity to sun, <laughs> and then uh, but, but also a memory, something that that moves you. So uh, I, I like rosé. It captures memory. It's an uncomplicated wine. There are a few that do make it complicated, but uh, I think it's an uncomplicated wine that captures memory and, and, and the weather <laughs> in a nice way. So that's my little, uh, my little duet with rosé. Any opening thoughts, Pietro? Yeah. Do you enjoy really making rosé? I'm sorry? Do you enjoy making rosé? I do actually. We're not really set up to do a lot of high tech white wine making, uh, but rose is sturdy enough on one hand that uh, for our rustic methods, it actually turns out pretty well. Uh, the, our current club release is actually three different roses um, one light one, a, a medium red with a little bit of blending, and then the darker one, which we have here. Um, and I found it really nuanced and always kind of interesting and surprising. And I feel like I learned something about the grapes we're using, like a new face or a, a, a disposition to them that I wasn't aware of before every time I make one. I like that. So, so yeah, I, I actually do. I do enjoy it. And sometimes they're surprising. Sometimes they're frustrating. Uh, sometimes... Um, Rosés, at least for me, with the grapes we're using, they change a lot. And sometimes, like, six months after bottling, I'm like, oh, yeah, this is a home run. This is perfect. And then it keeps kind of migrating somewhere else. Or it'll come into focus all of a sudden uh, in the bottle in a really beautiful way. So I, they're kind of like a really interesting moving target to me. What's the, what's the most finicky grape? It does that, 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 that yeah. oscillates in color and, and it changes a little bit in character. Out of the current ones, um, I've been using Early Harvest Primitivo for the light one. Early Harvest Primitivo. Yeah, I have a, I have a block of Primitivo, very small, that uh, just because of virus and things like that, it won't ripen for red wine anymore. So I've been using it for white, and it actually produces a really saline, minerally, almost salty, lightly colored, peach-scented white, or uh, rosé. It's okay. almost... Um, I mean, it's almost like Pinot Gris color. It's just, uh, that's been really fascinating though. I feel like it's given me some, some background with Zinfandel winemaking also by being able to do that. I feel like I understand the grape a little 
differently. Wow. Higher acid form. So I'm excited to try the, uh, the, uh, Muffini. The Muffini. Yeah. yeah. That's, mm. that's Aliana. looks to be early, early pick. Not a lot of information mm. on Muffini. That's this one. That's this one. It, uh, he's a, it's a, it's a duo. It's, uh, it's Luigi and Raffaella, which is, a. Excuse me, uh, Luigi and Raffaella, which uh, started their their winery. Actually, I actually don't even know what year they started, but they farmed two vineyards in uh, in an area uh, called Cilento, just south of Salento, um, on its way to this uh, national park. So, kind of on the edges of the national park, and of course, the Tyrrhenian Mediterranean. Um, but they've got, a, I think, they've got a very kind of restrained style to it. It's very clean, kind of cliff bright wine. Um, and mm -hmm. as it gets a little closer to room temperature, I think a lot of the volcanic soils, um, mm -hmm. and it's, you know, a lot of the mm -hmm. and volcanic and that so, so on and so forth. Um, but, uh, really comes out, I think, uh, in that one, um, certainly different from the Prototori de Maduria, which is like a, like a lipstick. Mm -hmm. head. Yeah. <laughs> kind of a punch mm -hmm. in the face. <laughs> which you can do with rosés. That's what's so fascinating about it. Picking, picking time and the, and the. The way the grapes come in really does a lot to determine what you get out of the rosé, but it also shapes, you know, you can do late harvest rosés at 15% alcohol that are lipsticky, bubblegum, you know, super bright California or Italian right. uh, without a whole lot of depth. Or you can swing the opposite way and kind of do something super lean and racy and maybe not quite so gluttonous. Yeah. Um, and they're all, they're all valid. They're, they're all, you know, realistic choices you can make. I believe that super lean style in Italy is called Chiretto. Mm. Um, or it's a, a very kind of clean kind of, uh, almost, almost entirely off the skins kind of, kind of style. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And Italy has a really broad selection of rosés. The styles are more so than France, I think. Really? You think so? I, it's when it, all right, styles, yeah. Yeah, I believe so. Styles, yes. Um, as far as just the regional patchwork of the stylistic, you know, what this village does and that village does five miles away. Yeah. Pretty yeah. fascinating. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. You know, I think of France. France may have longer history. But. I think of French rosé and I, I think, you know, what... You know, the, 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 the kind of the main areas, uh, you know, and, and France is really, uh, really a, a, not the birthplace of rosé. I don't think you can really claim birthrights of rosé. <laughs> you know, I think it's just kind of a winemaking method. And I think it was probably extracted from winemaking as, as, a, as a way to drink wine younger, younger and earlier. Um, but uh, it's certainly, I think that, you know, if, if, if there was to be a birthplace claimed, um, I, I like to look at the areas that exclusively make rosé. And in the Southern Rhone here, um, you've got the area of Tavel down in uh, j just kind of to the west mm. of uh, Chateauneuf-du-Pont. And Tavel is a, it was, you know, that's an area that only makes rosé. Um, but, you know, French-wise, Pietro, you know, it's, I think of like the clean and fresh Cabernet Franc and Gamay Noir and, maybe a little peppery Pinot Denis driven rosés from the Loire Valley. Um, and then I think of Provence and the languedoc Sillon down in the south here. And those as being kind of like the big rosé areas. Um, 
and they vary in style. Um, I'm not quite sure where I was going with that. Maybe I just wanted to show you the map. <laughs> but, but uh, they, you know, they vary in style, and, and I think they can get really interesting in, in France. Um, but, but really just like that kind of fresh noir style or that pale pink and super herbaceous, not quite so herbaceous, herbaceous maybe more um, uh, maybe more fresh um, flowers and, 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 and dried herbs and things like that and lavender and the herbs de Provence. Um, not quite so green herbaceous, I meant more, more herbs. Um, and then you get the really de deep and, and heavy and, and, and firm, full style, almost saigné from Tavel, but that's it in, in France. In Italy, you're right, I could name like five different styles right off the top of my head. Etna to Piemonte to Veneto to, yeah. Did you know, uh, Pietro, that there is a rosé um, event, a, an annual rosé event where the Apugliese celebrate all 20 varietals of rosé that they produce? No. <laughs> <laughs> there is. Um, it's called Puglia and Rosé. Uh, it's an annual event. It's uh, in conjunction with the specialty food show in New York. Um, I just discovered that. So, anyway. There's a whole event around rosé. So any of you the diehard rosé lovers will send you the, <laughs> the report back to us. Now's a good time to be a good diehard rosé lover because the world is your oyster in a way it hasn't been before rosé-wise. There's a lot out there. Yeah. Pietro and I have worked for the same uh, outfit here in uh, Berkeley, or north of me in Berkeley. Um, it's called uh, Vintage Berkeley. And it's two, well, it's three stores Two of them are named Vintage Berkeley, different locations, and the one's called Solano Cellars. And the one that I, he and I worked for the same store at different times, just crossing over, which is how we met. Um, and uh, they have a cart that's in the front of the store, and it's uh, it's packed with rosé. And the guy who runs the shop has a real, he like gets upset with himself when his rosés he thinks are boring. So he, he, almost, he have, probably has twenty different labels. And oh, and, like, yeah. yeah. Stuff from Hungary, stuff from northern Spain, stuff from the United States, New Zealand. Uh, uh, anyway. yeah. Yeah. All right, cool. Shall we get started? Mm. Yeah. All right. So, uh, as usual, this is just a discussion, uh, but Pietro and I are going to do a little bit of uh, presenting in just in the beginning. Um, not so much the history of rosé, but I think uh, prominent places in the world where it plays. Um, I'll uh, talk a little bit about the old world uh, and Pietro will talk a little bit about the new world. And then uh, we'll dig into what's in the glass and start uh, figuring out what we've got and, and how, it, how, it, you know, kind of how it lays out against one another um, side by side. And uh, also dig into what, else, what other areas in Southern Italy, the Mezzogiorno, as, well, as they call it, um, Basilicata, Calabria, Sicilia, Sardinia, Campania, Lazio. Well, Lazio is a little bit more central, but they're also, I suppose, they're considered mezzogiorno as well. Um, and uh, did I miss any? I think I got them all. Apulia, I think it's the one I'm missing. Um, those are all the mezzogiorno. Is that? It is, uh, I'm blanking on it. Is it Molise? Molise, yeah. You know, I always find Molise supposed to are always Molise Central, Centrale. Yeah. Tuscany, Umbria. Kind of Lazio gets wrapped up in there as well. Yeah. Lazio, Umbria. 
But I don't see much in that area, though. I don't know anything about Molise. I, I know, I mean, I know what I should, but I, I, don't, I haven't tasted their wines in a long time. Um, but uh, that's the Mezzogiorno, and you do have a lot of different rosés coming from uh, um, Sicilia, um, a little bit from Sardinia, and then, of course, we're going to talk about Campania and Apulia, and Apulia kind of being uh, the place where I think that makes the most rosé in Italy, covering around 40% of total rosé production coming from Italy. Comes from Apulia. Yeah. I think oh, so, yeah. around that, yeah. Um, anyway, hey, Pedro, do you want to start off with the New World? I know it's a little backwards, but I started off last time, and I've already been talking uh, way too sure. What should I say about the New World? Um, <laughs> if we're talking about California, uh, microcosm, there are a lot of different rosés coming out of California. And I think... Uh, it's actually a good way to kind of get a glimpse into climate and geology and terroir and all of that across the state. Um, not surprisingly, you can find very amped up Cabernet based rosés from Napa and Sonoma. You can find really beautiful, more minerally and maybe old world inflected Pinot rosés from cooler climate places. Um, you can find full throttle Paso rosé. Uh, and I think they're all pretty, pretty interesting. Um, the one thing that's kind of uh, just worth mentioning from the winemaking perspective is there are pretty much two different ways you can make rosés. Actually, there are three. Uh, in France and some other areas, you can make a pink by taking white wine and adding a splash of red to it, which is a fully legal and approved way to do it in some areas, uh, which has really interesting results. Um, especially in some champagnes. Uh, but the two options we really have to us is either the Sanier method, where we sort of pick for a red wine and then bleed some of the juice off before it has time to have a lot of skin contact. And then you ferment that. Or you can pick something generally earlier and put it directly into the press, press it like you would a white wine, but it picks up a little bit of color along the way. And that's generally how you get the really pale, pretty uh, onion skin sort of uh, those French styles are often that way, although Tabelle is different. And they yield different things. Um, the Sanier method tends to be more fruit forward. You have riper grapes that you're working with. So you get more of those mature red fruits and uh, some interesting spice things. Uh, whereas if you're harvesting early and then pressing directly, you tend to get a more earth, maybe earthy, minerally, more restrained fruit, but more, uh, more of that subtle, like peach, apricot, pepper, uh, some of those notes, not so much like the bright red cherry kind of thing. And the way people choose, when they choose to pick and what they choose to do at that point is sort of a, an important crossing point. I like the direct press method with lean grapes because I feel that you get more body from it. You get all that sort of gelatinous stuff that's inside the grape skin. Oh, um, yeah, and that kind of translates through the wine. So you can make kind of a more tense thing where you have higher acidity, but you have a little more body and a little more flesh that kind of rounds it out. Uh, but that being said, the, the Prima Materia Rosé is all Sanier. Um, so different than the very pale one that I did, uh, just different. I don't think one is necessarily better than the other. They're just different styles. Um, 
Yeah, uh, the majority is uh, is skin contact. If you if you were to kind of buy a rosé from every region of the world and taste them all, you're mostly going to come across skin contact. Um, yeah, definitely. It's more of a headache to pick something early and press it and go through the whole go through the whole thing. Whereas, I mean, in California, I mean, one of just for the sake of clarity, one of the not it's not a dirty trick, but it's a, a typical winemaking thing to do is uh, if you pick really ripe grapes, you have to add water back to bring the alcohol down, which is legal. It's something we try to avoid, but a lot of producers, it's just standard protocol. So you bleed off some of that juice and then add water back to replace it to bring the alcohol back back down to a reasonable level. And there's a lot of rosé out there that's it's pretty tasty for being, you know, something that might not be the most pure intent wise. You can still get a really great rosé out of that. There's lots of Cabernet rosé floating around that, you know, tanks and tanks of it, that that's exactly how it was made and why it was made. Yeah. It still is pretty damn good. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I, it's fascinating for that. Um, but I, I do tend to like the cooler climate, uh, like something like Etna rosés, where you have, you know, sun-drenched fruit, but you have this intense mineral and acidity, and you have mm -hmm. the altitude and these shifts in temperature. Like that's where the rosé really gets fascinating to me. Yeah, I agree. I, I've also had rosés from Novara in northern Piemonte. Um, on your way to Alto Piemonte, Novara, and a little town north of that called Gattinara, and the uh, Colin Novarese, and it's, it's, it's a, it's, that's a special area for Nebbiolo, um, but the, I've had some rosé that's been really beautiful, and you start to see some of the um, blending grapes from that area, like Vespolina and Uvarara show, show a little bit more in the blend, and Nebbiolo sometimes backs off to Barbera and maybe Freja from Lange and stuff like that. Those are some of my favorites. Cool. Yeah, I, I, I appreciate a good Alpine rosé. Um, although I cannot, I cannot uh, deny Tavel. Um, and maybe I'll jump in a little bit and, and talk just a little bit about Tavel. And um, we're in the southern uh, part of the Rhone Valley of France. Um, and you know, when I, I look back to kind of history, historical stuff, there's a couple of. Uh, sources that I go directly to. Um, but just as a, as a sommelier grasping in the great wide world of, of wine and trying to find something to hold on to in order to build an understanding, um, because the world of wine is so vast, um, you have to start somewhere. For me, uh, it's either a person's story or the story of a town. Um, and, and basically, that comes, when it comes down to historical relevance, uh, certainly when we were talking about uh, Barbera uh, two weeks ago, we were, you know, it really was about the, the castle in Monferrato and those documents dating back to the 1400s. And uh, here um, uh, with Rosé is the town of Tavel um, in southern Rhone, west of Chateauneuf-du-Pape and Lyon, those areas. Um, and Tavel is 100% Rosé production. That's what they do. <laughs> um, and, uh, and I love that. Um, or mostly Rosé production. Um, I, have to, I haven't looked at the AOC in a long time. Um, but uh, that area, um, they deal exclusively in, in those kind of Southern Rome grapes. So you're going to see Grenache, Mauvedre, Claret, Borboulet, 
Um, so some and, and, and a lot of others. There, 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 there's a number that's well over 16 or so um, in that area. Um, certainly um, being blended into shots enough, but here in, in, in Tavel, um, no more than uh, any of those grapes on their own cannot be any more than 60% of the blend. Um, so it's always going to be a blend of grapes from that area, a blend of different expressions um, uh, showcasing kind of a full, complete picture. Um, Tavel's got an extraordinary history. Um, it was uh, founded in the fifth century by Greeks um, and uh, first vineyards were planted during that era as well. Um, Tavel, uh, when it comes to winemaking, um, there's a little bit of information. Uh, Pope Innocent IV in the 1730s declared Tavel to be uh, what they call a CDR or a place of quality wine uh, among the very first in that area. Um, but when it comes to the true history of Tavel, it's really in the, about the winemakers. Um, and they, uh, they have a very special relationship to, you know, kind of the, the French AOC, which is their governing organization when it comes to how they govern quality in, uh, of wine in France, the Appellation Origin Contrôle. Um, and in, in, in it's Italy, it's the DOC, uh, Denominazione Origin Contrôle. Um, but uh, controllata, excuse me. Um, but in France, uh, in Tavel, uh, 1902 was around the first time in that area where local winemakers, winemakers started to band together and, uh, and, and create a governing body for themselves, um, pointing out the proper vineyards, the most, most historic vineyards, um, firming up the quality of winemaking in order to bring kind of a nice base level across um, the whole region um, in order to raise the fortunes for all. Um, and in 1927, 40 of those winemakers petitioned the government in Lyon to be recognized, to have these regulations that they'd spent years creating to be recognized. Um, and uh, in uh, not too long afterwards, a little less than, or a little over 10 years, um, in 1930, excuse me, 1937, exactly 10 years away, um, the AOC was created. The first governing body was created, and uh, and they used a lot of the model from Tavel. Um, so this this idea that local winemakers getting together and saying this is what we make and this is how we make it, um, you can these stories followed all across France and Champagne to the Cote d'Or and Burgundy and down in the south. But in Tavel, I. I, I, I think it's especially important because it is uh, predates the AOC and predates the government having any um, influence at all. Um, and I like to think that a lot of the uh, the founding principles of the AOC when it was established in the 30s um, looked to Tavel, um, their neighbors, to see uh, what they were doing. <laughs> and uh, so it's impressive to, to be sure. Um, um, and that's, you know, I could talk a little bit about more Tavel. It's got four zones and they're all kind of uniquely soil based. And as you get down into the area of Southern France, uh, certainly Rhone Valley is not, is considered Southern France, but between the Rhone Valley and Provence, you've got the hot Alps. And so you've got some territory in between, um, but the land lays out a little bit more sinuously. It's more rolling hills and and, and, and you're much closer to the water, so you've got a lot of different soil deposit areas from alluvial to morianic as you get up higher. And, um, and Tavel's a really special place. If you're interested in drinking rosé from Tavel, there's a producer that I love um, by the name of Chateau Manissi, M-A-N-I-S-S-Y. Um, and I think it's, uh, it's a good 
expression, a full-throated expression of Tabel Rose, which is full-throated. It's full-bodied and, and, and structured and awesome. Um, so I, I, would, I would recommend you checking out uh, Manisi. Um, it's going to be the fullest rosé you've ever had. You get a steak with it. Um, or if you were vegetarian, lots of heavy roasted root vegetables and things. But it'll be a really nice experience. Um, yeah, in southern Italy, it's, uh, it's, it's hard to, to trace anything in southern Italy because um, everything goes back to the Romans anyway. Um, but uh, when it comes to rosé, I think Apulia pretty much stands on, 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 on its own as being kind of the the heart of rosé in southern Italy, although it does play in almost every, probably in every region. I'm sure every region makes a rosé. Um, uh, you know, the, the laws in Italy, the DOC is, is uh, good, uh, but also can be very troubling um, because they allow some, a glut of styles for every region. So every region and sub-appellation and MGA, so to speak, can make everything from sparkling rosé to red to sweet um, and that's just kind of allowed for every every area and that can get a little bit difficult in Italy um, because you, you start to just see a lot of product and a lot of stuff perhaps not maybe quite in the best way um, and it's, so it's it's uh, can be a little tough to find a quality quality rosé um, but we'll talk about that a little bit more I'm, I'm done talking done talking uh, history <laughs> so to speak but look to Tavel most important spot I would say when it comes to rosé and the history of that that kind of method. Um, last thing I'll say quickly is you know um, Pietro talks about the Sagné method of uh, producing rosé, and I will say that you know for the most part, if if a, if a producer makes rosé, it's it's grapes uh, from vineyards that are already established uh, to produce wine in their portfolio. Um, but uh, I think. Uh, when you get to the Champagne region of France and you get to sparkling rosé nowadays, not so much in the back in the day, where it was mostly reserved for the houses, but nowadays, I think Champagne rosé is is one of the most exciting aspects to Champagne right now. One of the most, the, the rising categories, um, and producers like Larmandier Bernier and Lafoy, and there's just a lot of producers that dedicate their own vineyards to. Sing, their own single vineyard of Pinot Noir that is only for rosé production. They don't put that in any of their other product. Um, and so I think you start to come across some of these really beautiful rosé. Gata Noir makes Grand Cru rosé in I, and, and that's really beautiful stuff. Um, and uh, and Sagné rosés are, are very special from France. So I think rosé is, is taken, to, taken to another level in, in, in Champagne. Um, and it's probably one of the only areas in the world that sees a predominance of still red wine being blended in. You see skin, you see Sagné, but you also see just red juice blended in. And that's not typical in other parts of the world, certainly in Spain and here in the U.S. I mean, I don't know, it's getting different. Um, but uh, in France, in Champagne, it's, it's considered to be quality driven, whereas elsewhere in the world, it might consider to be not the best winemaking practice. But anyway, that's my two cents. I'd point out too, some of these old world areas, especially, you know, Tavelle, if you are, the viticulture you practice to create a dedicated rosé is very different than what you are doing when you're just creating it as an afterthought to your red wine. So that's a huge thing. I, I know my little block, I deal with the canopy very differently 
than how I would if I was intending to grow it as a full-length red grape uh, for a fully ripe red wine. Um, the other thing about Europe and Italy, too, is just older vines, man. I, rosés have that transparency so you can get older vine speaking loudly. That sense of minerality and sort of the direct spine to it and... Uh, just there's a there's a lot of very subtle layers that build up in there with 40 50 60 year old vines that we just don't have that many of in california absolutely there, there are a few special ones like i, I think bedrock's lulu is a yeah yeah they're but they're few and far between it's just this is a younger place so we don't have that kind of really grand history with it that that you know Savelle and a few other places do yeah. um and I think that's important, though. I agree. Like, I'm sure down the road you'll find more old vineyards that maybe are rehabilitated or maybe they're not quite right for regular red wine production. But kind of converting them a little bit to rosé production could really yield some some interesting benchmark results. That's so interesting. You know, I, I never thought of, I never just, I never mixed old vines into the equation when I'm thinking about rosé, but uh, I, I think you're absolutely right now. Well, that's one of our biggest challenges here in California, even Lake County. Like, you know, it's hard to find a grapevine that's over 25 years old in Lake County. It just, the industry is relatively young. And typically, if you have investors and they're watching everything, you pull out a vineyard at 20 to 25 years of age and replant new vines that will produce more. Right. Everything in Napa Valley, for the most part, is on a 20, 22-year cycle. But old vines can be magical. I mean, I've walked yeah. down in Piedmont, in Piemonte, that where the, the you know old vines produce some very expensive but very special juice. <laughs> yeah, I, from the ethical point of view, if we need, I, I'm glad there are people out there doing what they can to preserve older vineyards. Um, going back to Bedrock and some of these other other companies that see the va inherent value in what California has left of old vines. Hmm. So, I think that's important. And I think rosés show that in a way that uh, another style of wine might not. My two cents. <laughs> uh, valuable two cents, my friend. I, I have a, um, a question and I may be weighing over my head here. In some of the reading I'm doing, um, I read that, you know, in some vineyards, they basically, um, I think this is Ian Dagata, is probably where I picked this up. But in some of the vineyards, certainly in Italy, is they, what is the word, should I say, the, they cull the grapes in a, in a sense, so that the grape production on the vine is different. In, in other words, producing a lot, a lot, a lot of grapes, they kind of thin them out yeah. to get a, a different cut. Is this something that is done on only on older vines, or is it something you can do on younger vines in order to control it, the kind of wine that you want to produce from that grape? Have yeah. I... Am I being too obtuse? Well, it's it's often done actually on younger vines because they're more vigorous. Uh-huh. Uh, older vines tend to be less vigorous 
and they're more uh, okay. focused with their mm-hmm. energies. Uh, they're much more wise with them. Um, for some things like young Sangiovese vines, yeah, I got to go through and make sure bunches aren't touching and overlapping and uh, okay. getting three bunches per cane. Um, mm-hmm. Dolcetto has huge two and a half pound bunches and all want to work into each other. Um, and you got to make some manual adjustments in there to get something that's mm-hmm. of good quality. Um, ideally, you do that before they have completely turned red, though. So it's not really usable. For, it's more like Verju than, uh, <laughs> than rosé production. But uh-huh. I have stories of people who go in and because um, right now the grapes are at, the grapes have just only in the last few weeks fully changed color. They're, they're green before they turn red. Um, but if you're doing a little bit later, you can make a really super zippy, high acid, pale, pale red kind of thing out of it. Mm-hmm. I've heard of farmers doing that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's, it is a possibility, but there's not a whole lot of phenolic maturity to mm-hmm. those. So you're not going to get this, the ripe red fruits and the, mm-hmm. you know candy sort of black cherry notes and those things. It'll be a, a little more herbaceous. Yeah, Marion, and I think uh, the the idea that, that that you know behind you know managing the vigor in the vines, and I'm I'm not speaking with new the experience that Pietro has, but just uh, from from what I read and research, um, it's less about those grapes that you drop and more about what that effect has on the grapes that are still on the vine, mm-hmm. um, and it's about you know really concentrating the vigor of that vine and 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 as few bunches as possible is, is always, uh, am I, am I correct? As few bunches as possible. Not always, but can. Yeah, <laughs> it's like everything in life, it's complicated. <laughs> um, it also means few, few bottles. <laughs> yeah. Also, you know, then this gets into like, you know, very meta sort of analysis, but at the same time, but you want to make wine that you don't intervene on too much because you want the place mm-hmm. to speak and the grapes to speak and the climate right. to speak. Right. But part of that is also not intervening with the vines too much. Mm-hmm. So you also don't want to, or I don't want to, I don't feel right taking a super productive vine, like say a dolcetto vine that is just naturally very productive. Very I would not want to turn it into a Napa Valley bonsai. 1.2 pounds per vine thing because I think that sort of denatures the whole enterprise a little bit. So it's kind of, it's finding a, a balance and a continuum that is still, still has integrity with, you know, Dolcetto mm-hmm. should be productive. I, it, that's its nature. So I wouldn't want to choke it back so much that we're trying to make something else out of it. So, and even with pruning, you know, each vine is a vine unto itself. One got frost damage. One had a, a gopher mm-hmm. eat some of the roots. One has <laughs> pruning wounds and has some vascular constrictions. And you got to mm-hmm. treat each one as an individual and mm-hmm. the integrity that's there without mm-hmm. just kind of going in with an axe and trying to make everything bend to your will. So yeah. it's, it's a sliding scale. Yeah. And the, but the, and the wines are out there, those, those axe-driven wines are out there where, where that oh, yeah. you clearly feel the winemaker is, is pushing the envelope. Um, and, it, and, and what the expression in the glass is what it is. It's, it's different. I mean, are you, yeah, uh, there, are, there are lots of ways. Pietro. I'm sorry. 
I have two other questions for uh, for you, Pietro. The, the first is the most elementary. I still don't understand what makes the rosé a rosé. Hmm. Not, not the grape, the color. What? what yeah. What, what, what is, and then the second question, different, is um, I've had from you a different rosé, um, quite different from the one that we're enjoying tonight. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about that and this and the difference in circumstances? Uh, yeah, I can do it briefly. Um, the rosé is the, the less amount of time you have the juice and skins in contact, the lighter the color is going to be. Uh, and by association, it will pick up more or less flavor depending on the amount of time that those skins sit in the crushed grape juice. So with the rosé, you're taking the juice away from the skins at some point. The earlier you do it, the faster you do it, the less color you have. And arguably the less fruit expression also, because a lot of that fruit expression comes from compounds that are in the skin of the grape, uh, not necessarily within the pulp of the grape. So that's sort of the baseline with rosé. You can make a rosé out of any red grape. They'll be different colors, different hues, and have different fruit profiles. But generally, you know, Merlot, Syrah, Grenache, um, you know, you can choose to either press it directly and get a lighter colored one and separate those skins immediately, or you can leave it on the skins for maybe up to three days, depending on how fast the color extracts into it, and then separate them, and then continue fermenting that juice that has the light pink color. Uh, but it, it's the skins that give the give rosé its color. So how long you leave those two things together determines the the fruit and the hue of the wine ultimately. Um, as to the other rosé, it might have been the the white Zinfandel uh, play on white Zin Zinfandel Bianco, we call it. But very different method than this one. The one we have today is it's a Sanye for made from fully ripe red grapes um, and. There's a little bit of the Ionico portion in here that goes sort of overripe every year. So this this rosé is actually a little over 15%. So it's pretty full throttle uh, as rosés go. Whereas the other one is low alcohol. We press, I, I actually move all the grapes by hand from the crusher into the press and dump the tubs in directly. Uh, so so it doesn't go through our terrible pump that grinds everything up. Just trying to keep as as fresh and clean uh, a style as possible by doing that and having it go through less machinery. This is the other way where the juice sat with the skins for about a day before I drained off the portion of it that I wanted to make rosé with and uh, just sort of siphoned it off into another container to ferment the two different components. So the, the color on the Prima Materia Rosé is what a red wine looks like after about 24 hours of contact with the skins. And Barbera and Ionico both have a good amount of color. So if you did the same thing with the Pinot Noir, you might have maybe a third of the color. Uh, this the, the color of the, the Prima Materia Rosé is about the same as a lot of low oak Pinot wine fully red wine, so, yeah. Yeah, now, Neil, I think the big, the, the, you know, 
one of the big differentiations is, is you know, those rosés that we're talking hours, whereas reds, we're talking days. On the yeah, typically. Yeah, and also I, I think the character of the grapes. Um, rosé, you wouldn't really want to drink a rosé that doesn't have the right acidity to it. Um, and so I think, you know, growing grapes that are, or selecting grapes from your portfolio that, that showcase a little bit more acidity, like Barbera, like Agnanico, and those grapes um, are going to make make for a much better rosé. In my opinion, I started to get it. Thank you. Hopefully, that was helpful. And, and Neil, uh, rosé was born for uh, certainly in in what was that? I have that wrong. Uh, rosé in, in southern France was born out of necessity. I mean, it's warm down there, and you're, you're, you're next to the Mediterranean. It's beautiful. Um, and uh, people wanted uh, red wine, which was the fashion way back in the day, back in the 5th, 6th century, all that. Um, but uh, it's too hot down there, so you wanted uh, red wine, but you wanted it to be lighter. But you still wanted to keep the character of a red wine. So I believe uh, that's kind of where Rosé <laughs> perhaps, perhaps was initiated and born, was that need for character in the wine, but not being white. Because, you know, you, you, when you read history of wine in various areas, and I've read, I've read a bit in my career, um, r red wine was really prized. Um, red wine was really kind of the, the, the product to make when it, when it comes to ancient viticulture. I mean, even the Champenois, before the they discovered the big fault of bubbles, which was a fault for them in the beginning, certainly for Dom Perignon. He did everything in his, everything in his power to get rid of bubbles <laughs> until he discovered that bubbles were a good thing. Um, but they were making red wine. They were trying to go after Burgundy. They were trying to hit Burgundy and, and get, as, get as good as they were. Um, so, uh, yeah. Born out of necessity. Yeah. My two cents. Should we talk about some wines? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. How many people have the, uh, we'll start with the lightest, I think, of the three. I think we'll save Prima Materia for the end. Certainly, if you look at it, the whole lineup, that Materia, Sanye method, big, full, kind of gobsmacking feel to it. Um, but uh, who's got the Maffini in the glass? Um, Anyone uh, have Maffini? This is the Maffini. Yes. Yes. Cool. I, I spent uh, the last two days drinking a Maffini. I don't have mine here, but I know it well. Um, Jeff, yeah. what are your thoughts to the Luigi Maffini um, in the in the glass uh, and also on the palate? Man, this this has some acid. Yeah, it does. <laughs> I am impressed by that. Um, I couldn't find a whole lot of information online with it, but it looks like they are picking. Uh, so this is Ionico base. I think it's 100% Ionico. 100%. Yeah. Um, in yeah. early to mid, or at least the first half of September, mm -hmm. our Ionico is still green the second week of September. It's a very late harvesting grape, the latest in Italy probably. Mm -hmm. And it has a lot of acidity. So when I saw that date, I was wondering, first I was wondering whether or not it was just a Sanier of fully ripe Ionico. And then I saw early September. It's like, oh, this is going to be interesting. Yeah, you know, when I tasted, I, I, I looked around for a bit of information. I reached out to the distributor to try and get me some actual information on it. And it's a little tough 
um, Muffini, um, just because I think they're young. I think they started in like 1996 or something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, it was like 2005. I'm, I'm sorry. I think it, anyway, I think they're young. But uh, yeah, they well, I was going off of what I got on the palate. And so I don't, I get zero presence of oak on that wine. The yeah. Muffini is, I get, obviously it hasn't gone through malolactic. Um, it's retained its mallows. Um, I get no treatment on the lees, no creaminess. There's a very kind of dry, clipped, bright, aromatic quality to it. Um, but one thing I liked about that wine is it was opening was uh, the earthiness of that wine. Um, these kind of wild mm-hmm. cranberries uh, laced with this kind of volcanic earthiness. Um, it made me think of bell pepper bruschetta mm-hmm. and like sardines on cracker and things like that that I want to have. Um, there's something, uh, I think, naked about that wine. Um, I don't get a sense of a heavy winemaking. Yeah. Yeah, I don't either. I was very sort of pure. I was going to mention, it's funny you mentioned earthy because I was going to, I think mm-hmm. I saw that you have, um, you were featuring a, a champagne producer, uh, not Coudier. Who do you have in your lineup right now? La Herte Frere. Uh, no, it's a different one. Uh, there's a champagne producer. I thought I saw that maybe you have a bottle, and it's uh, would be classified as a an, an earthy champagne. Hmm. And I remember the first time I tried it because it was like nothing but dust and spider webs, like <laughs> old basement in a good way. Like there was there's just so little really nice basement, <laughs> but it has all this expressive. Yeah. You know, mi- mineral tones and like m- mushroom ash and just these things. Like I'm struggling with descriptors for it because it's it, it, it's not like bright, you know, baked pear fruit. Um, this reminded me of that a little bit. Sort of singing in the middle, but not you know, the fruit is there. It has that you know, yeah, pretty cranberry sort of very, you know, not a lower ripeness fruitiness to it but yeah it's more about the mineral and the earth and the, the tactile you know uh yeah you get sort of the some volcanic soil uh the, the buzzing energy to it mm. so it's, it's it's not a fancy rosé but i think it's a really interesting uh food friendly uh, yeah. rosé of place yeah rosé of clarity food is key Food is key with this rosé. Yeah. Um, they make a tomato down in uh, Campania called the Pignanolo tomatoes. You come across these, Pietro? They're little, these little tomatoes, and they're, they're, they're from, like, Mount Vesuvius, and they're, like, <laughs> they taste earthy to them. And mm-hmm. all I want is that on, the, on some uh, fettuccine um, mm-hmm. when I have that, that particular rosé. Um, yeah, and, and, you know, I... I I recall in our last discussion, and I'm not sure, Kevin, I think, I think we talked a little bit about uh, acidity and kind of the different, I don't know, expressions of acidity um, that showcase themselves in the glass. And I might be wrong. It could have been somebody else. Um, but, uh, you know, I think that the, certainly of all the three, the, the Maffini has this, and I'm surprised they were able to capture this in Campania, but it's, it's like biting into an apple. It's very crisp, like pithy, aromatic, but like just a very kind of clip, bright acidity that, that makes your tongue kind of seize up just a little bit. Whereas if with the, the Maduria one in your wine, the acidity is a little bit softer and a little bit easier on the palate. And 
for me, the, the difference between the two is a meal and on its own. <laughs> you know, I want a meal with the first one with that bright clipped, you know, that you know, torturing your tongue acidity and, and with the other ones that are a little bit broader and more open and softer. You know, I want to drink those kind of on their own. Those are a little more pleasing. Okay, so I just have to tell you that um, Dana made vegetables to go with this tonight. And oh, they're nice. mushrooms and onions and zucchini and carrots with a little salt and pepper and olive oil that she roasted. And they, it goes beautifully. Mm. With this it really does. I mean, it, the wine just opens up with, with that, that the, the flavor of those vegetables is perfect. Yeah, yeah. I'm glad you had that. Uh, that's awesome. Dana, nice move. Nice move, Dana. Hey. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, it's exactly what we're just talking about. It's perfect. It's like, oh yeah, you should. It's funny because we were just saying when uh, Pietro said about the acidity, we're like, well, what the hell does acidity mean? I think we missed it on the last two. We've been drinking And much. so we Googled it, and we were. Like, <laughs> so thank you for clarifying. And, and then you guys talked about it. Now I can actually taste it and yeah. have a better. And remember, you know, Dana, acidity is one of the four major components of wine when it comes to experiencing it and judging it and trying to figure out what's in the glass. For me as a psalm and working in a restaurant, when I, you know, when I would arrive, especially in New York and do my setup procedures, you know, I'd be, you know, presented with, uh, you know, maybe nine different new menu items, in the restaurants that I worked at. And, uh, and, you know, half of them would be prepared in front of us and, I'd be part of a small crew of sommeliers, about six or seven of us. Um, and that's big for, a, for, that's a lot of sommeliers for a restaurant. Um, and uh, we would pull a bunch of wines and taste. And, and really like when you're in a, in a kitchen and like vents are going off and like you're usually next to the garmiche, which is the person that makes antipasti and stuff and soups and salads. Um, so there's always like odd smells and stuff. You're just focusing on alcohol, tannin, sugar, which I just call dryness, and acidity. And of those four, acidity is mouthwatering, refreshing. And the best way to measure acidity, Dana, do you have wine in the glass right now? I do. You better. Um, <laughs> take a sip of wine, swish it around your palate a little bit. Okay. Swallow, but the moment that wine gets in, you know, leaves your, leaves your mouth, Leave your mouth open and put your tip of your tongue to the roof of the mouth and just wait and see what happens inside your mouth. And I know this is like rudimentaries, you know, sometimes acidity should just be, you know, perfectly straightforward, but I'll tell you, wine's a sensory experience and going back to basics is the most important thing when it comes to enjoying wine. So this like, and just leave your mouth open. Not do nothing. And you feel the saliva start to build, kind of pour out of your mouth. That's acidity. That's it. And it's the key. It's the key to good pairing sometimes because that can often temper spice. You know, it can, it can, it can relax really spicy food. It can, can relax fish oil. Right? Acidity can do a lot of fun stuff when it comes to food and wine. But that's acidity. It's a good way to measure. Yeah, you're welcome, of course. And the further you get to warmer climate, climates, the less acidity you're going to encounter in wines. Pietro and I like rosés that have firm acidity that are bright and clean. So we always look to alpine climates. Cool. 
Yeah. Any other thoughts about Mafini? Mm. Lean and crisp. Shall we move to the protatory? Mm -hmm. Cool. Does anyone want to take us uh, take us off? Talk a little bit about the color and the flavor, and a little bit about the aroma. Mm. Oh. I smell a lot of apple. Mm. Amy, what's the your, 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 your music? Said that. Is that Dana? No, I smell strawberries. Oh, you smell strawberries. Hold on, we'll get to strawberries in just a second. Dana, what's the state of that apple? Is that still on the tree? Is it full of color? Is it still green or is it falling down on the ground? And Gotten maybe stomped on by a mule. I don't know. <laughs> Feels a little bit more generous. I think it's a pretty ripe apple. I feel yeah. like it is right. The fruit's yeah. pretty strong. It's almost like it's it's almost like someone's made a jelly out of it a little bit. Yeah, it's more fruit. Yeah, Dana, I get I get strawberry too. Thank God. <laughs> what's the state of those strawberries dana are they did you pick them off the off the bush yesterday or or are they like almost ready to be like spread over a over a bit of toast get your nose in there don't think about it <laughs> okay i'm getting wet earth Mm. I just feel like they're kind of at their perfect. It's not that one, no. Perfect, right? Yeah. The way that you're like little to little strawberries when they're perfectly right, they're like a little sweet. Yeah. Yeah. Anyone else agree? Disagree? No, this is the Aka. Yeah. No. no. That's the um, creamer material. Yeah, the, 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 uh, yeah. uh, the one from Madhuria, the Aka. To me, I also get strawberries, but for me, the strawberries are almost like in the syrup that you get when you go to like an ice cream place and you get like strawberries and syrup. To me, it's got a very kind of a sweet nose, but that's just me. That's just what I'm getting. I think what I'm driving at is different. Yeah, I'm, I'm driving at, uh, you know, an area that's warmer. Um, certainly a little bit warmer from Chilento and, and uh, in Campania, where the first wine comes from. Here, we're, uh, we're facing the Ionian Mediterranean. Um, and it's a very hot, hot area down, down in Apulia. Uh, Pietro, you've spent some time in Apulia, yeah? Yeah, but it was in the winter. <laughs> Darn it. Yeah. Apulia is hot. I mean, it's a hot, it's a hot place. Yeah, you can tell by looking at it. Yeah. Absolutely. So w when I'm uh, engaging with what's in the glass, folks, um, and trying to like figure out the aroma and like what's like what's speaking to me, you know, I, I try and latch onto a fruit that makes sense, but then I try and figure out what's the state of it. And for me, the the fruits in this glass are are very mature, dark, fuller, really almost to the point of being sweet perhaps almost to a little bit of the point of, of being cooked into a jam. 
Um, and for a rosé, that tells me this is from a warm climate. This is from an area that's got perhaps a little bit less acidity in the glass than the Muffini. This one's got a lot of fruit expression to it. A lot juicier. Yeah, I just want to drink this one on its own. Any thoughts about this wine? I like it. You like it? It's my favorite one. It's your favorite one. Yeah, it's pretty juicy. Huh? It's just an easy drinker, you know? Yeah, it really is. It's plush, soft. Yeah. This is um, this particular wine is an example, and there are there are a couple of these uh, examples in Italy. Um, in Piemonte, it's the Prototore de Barbaresco. In Alto Adige, it's the Cantin Terlan uh, Co-op and others. Um, and uh, down in Maduria, it's the Prototore di Maduria. And Maduria is in uh, kind of the northern part of Apulia, if you were to look at it. Um, and uh, this is a organization of about 400 different small producers who basically give their harvest to a single co-op, single winemaker who takes these grapes and, uh, and makes beautiful wine out of them. Um, and the best of these co-ops, these co-ops are everywhere, but there are very few that adhere to strict standards. There are very few that will only accept um, small farms of only of upwards of 2.5 hectare only. So what's that? Uh, five, six, seven acres, something like that. Um, so we're talking small, small farms um, that are growing Primitivo. This co-op, uh, you know, method was born just because everyone grew grapes in Italy. I mean, I, I talked to my friends um, who were, I worked in restaurants in, and their parents grew grapes next to the eggplant, next to the <laughs> so on and so forth. So grapes were, I think, prominent in, in, in everyone's life in Italy. Um, but yeah, anyway, I don't want to take over too much. I, I, this this is a, this is a very interesting aspect of the whole Italian wine production. I think this this aspect of co-ops, mm -hmm. and I recall we were doing whites. And the, is it Cincinnatus? Isn't that a co-op? We we had a white not uh, recently. Um, I'm not that sure. I got from you. It could be. It could be a uh, white you got from me from a co-op. And, and 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 it was called Cincinnatus or Cincinnatu, Cincinnate. I'll, I'll look sure it up. From me. But again, I looked it up and it was a co-op. The co-op as well. And yeah, yeah. And I just like the produttore. Yeah. I I th just think this is fascinating. Yeah, and but Mary, you know, there's a lot of co-ops out there, and and I think there, many of them are really just about getting wine to the trattorias and the inotecas yeah. and the places all over Italy. Um, yeah. but I think there are a few co-ops like the Prodatori um, de Barbaresco, mm -hmm. and uh, we're talking about a co-op in Barbaresco in uh, in Piedmont, right. northwestern Italy. And they were they began in the eighteen ninety something, and then uh, re began in nineteen fifty eight. But anyway, they're they're, they're a very um, a historic and and important co-op because they uh, they require a hundred percent harvest from their members. So every mm -hmm. single grape that they grow, so members can't like hold back the best grapes for their own mm -hmm. wine. Everything has to go to the, uh, the Prodatore. Um, they, they pay a single price per kilo of grapes across the board. 
Um, and uh, they, uh, they have a bonus system that's tiered. So the better quality grapes might turn to the next tier and the next tier. And all that information is posted in the town square every year. And that's just a couple of the rules that the Prodatory uh, advised by. But I'll tell you, it, it, it brings huh. quality right across the board and raises well. Wow. Yeah. yeah. I did spend a little bit of time in Manduria. And when we went out to the vineyards, it was a lot like Burgundy, where everybody has 200 vines, 300 vines. Sun is subdividing into 150 vines here and 150 vines for the brother. It's a, a patchwork of little tiny micro vineyard sites. Wow. It re really makes sense to have a co-op in that area. Oh, and I was going to mention, I actually did, uh, when we went down there, I got to do a, a guest chef afternoon at the at the co-op with, with their resident chef. Um, I forget what I did. It's like chestnut. Pork. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, it was it was it was a little bit nerve wracking. My my Italian's not that good, but uh, we we pulled it off. But uh, underneath the main area, they actually have uh, it's like in the basement is uh, a, a, a museum, the history of winemaking mm -hmm. in Puglia, uh, with dioramas and ancient implements and presses and you know pruning equipment. Uh, really interesting place. <laughs> And the whole time people are coming in with their five gallon jugs to load up the, uh, the, the diesel, you know, it's a, it's a pump that meters it out by the liter as it goes. Yep. It's, it's like filling up your car, except you're uh, filling up the wagon. I love it. I love yeah, it. Yeah. Really a neat place. Oh, I hear there's a fountain somewhere in Southern Italy that now just produces wine. Or doesn't produce wine, but it's just, it's a wine fountain in some square in Southern Italy. And it's just wine, not to stop. <laughs> a digression. I, I, I apologize. <laughs> I don't know what to do All right. Um, shall we move to uh, your wine, Pietro? I'm going to pop up some maps. You want to talk a little bit about where you're getting these grapes from and and uh, what your what your your thoughts were behind uh, this this particular rosé one of three which is intense yeah one of three this one's kind of the outlier of those three um but uh if you weren't weren't around last week uh so we're up in lake county just north of napa uh located in between the same maya common and uh, the run out of the Vaca Mountains. We do have a resident volcano about two miles away from the vineyard as well, which is sort of a third geological force. We're about two miles from that Clear Lake area. We're just in that uh, sort of western armpit, the Kelsey Bench area, uh, and we're at about 1,500 feet of elevation. Oh, wow. Yeah, so even though That's it's... It much higher up. Yeah, the lake level is about 1,300 feet. So it, it looks like you're at, you're at sea level, but you're actually already up a little ways. Um, so pretty warm in the summer. We get a lot of sunlight, especially when there's no smoke. Uh, and then it freezes pretty hard every winter, partially because of that altitude. So we have uh, a couple of different factors working. And fairly volcanic soils up there, since we're in between the two mountain ranges. Um, 14 different grapes planted on it. 
Uh, but this rosé was just sort of a end of season thought. Um, our Barbera and Ionico are two of the last things that we pick in the year, usually the end of October, sometimes as late as November. Um, and there's a little part of the Ionico vineyard that really, they're young vines and they're on really rocky soil and they tend not to, they kind of become very ripe before they feel like they're coming into balance. Um, still struggling with that little bit, but I decided to keep that, that little block separate and uh, lead off some Barbera about a day after we picked it. And then I did the same thing with that Ionico juice. Um, so the alcohol, uh, instead of being an early picked rosé, which is one of the types we make, this would be a late picked rosé. So the alcohol on it's actually 15%. So it's kind of a full throttle thing. Um, the kind of the third force in it though, is that both of those grapes have naturally pretty high acidity. So even though this is end of the season, uh, pretty high sugar and pretty good ripeness, they still naturally have a good amount of acid to them, which I thought would be an interesting, uh, an interesting kind of full bore attempt to see what we get. Uh, and this spent six, seven months in neutral barrels. Both of these grapes are ones that like to have a lot of oxygen. Um, just Barbera, we discussed a couple of weeks ago, it, it, it kind of eats up a lot of oxygen early in its life. And Ionico is the same way. So I had to put these in barrels because I was trying to keep them in stainless steel for a little bit. And they were getting just, it wasn't happy. Uh, there's still a little bit of tannin in there. Um, I was just needing more oxygen than stainless could give it. So I moved it to neutral barrels uh, where it stayed for seven months before bottling it just about two months ago. And this did not complete the malolactic fermentation, which is the second one that most red grapes go through. So you'll get a little bit of uh, almost on the back of the palate, like a green apple granular acidity sense. The main acid in red grapes is tartaric acid, which you kind of get on the, the tongue like that. Uh, you know, the second it hits the, the tip of your tongue, you can really feel it. But the malic acid is a little bit farther back on the palate. Um, and you can you can tell when you can. There are different ways that you can keep that in the grapes. This has not been filtered. So this this just occurred naturally that it didn't finish that secondary fermentation. So. Yeah, just kind of a fun experiment, um, kind of a nod to the the darker colored rosés of southern Italy, but within a kind of a weird experimental California framework. You know, Pietro, um, I have a question for you. Um, just to, between your wine and, let's say, the Maffini, um, you know, y your wine has these these really kind of vibrant, almost candied-like fruit you know, aromas to them and, and a very kind of a plush palate, but that kind of really candied, almost like a bubble gum, um, not quite bubble gum, but almost <laughs> getting up there. Whereas yeah. the Mancini is, uh, is a much cleaner kind of more, more polished fruit and then, and, and more like those crushed minerals, um, yeah. like crushed stones in a, in a brook or something. Apart from climate, what happens in the winery um, that, 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 that pulls out maybe fermentation temperature and time um, that pulls out those bubble, bubble gum kind of aromas versus, you know, the other, the other yeah. style. Cause you certainly don't have them in your white Zinfandel. 
Yeah, I, I associate the bubblegumness with uh, the ripeness of the grapes. And I made Sangiovese rosé. I, I do make a Sangiovese based rosé. That's the third one that's in between the two styles. Um, and if I pick it too late, it goes bubblegum. If I pick it where I like it, then it's strawberry, black pepper, and more sort of articulated savory elements. But it can become bubblegum if it gets a little too much California sunshine. Okay, so that's in the vineyard. Um, so I think that's mainly a, when you decide to pick. For some reason, I thought it had to do with the temperature of fermentation. Oh, well, it can also be a, a, a yeast and low temperature thing as well. Cool you temperature. Can get more right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So we're not, I'm, I'm not using that in this, like this isn't cultured yeast or anything like that, which is part of why <laughs> it's you know, secondary fermentation. This is kind of loose and iterative. Yes. But <laughs> it's like, yeah, good, <laughs> a good pairing there. <laughs> wow, wow, cool. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, there are a couple different ways you can you can get that. You can do super temperature controlled and you know uh, very high tech winemaking, and you can really dry out that sort of bubblegum, yeah, estery kind of thing as well. Ester feel kind of thing. Yeah, and those uh, because they spent time in barrel, this had more of that, but then they kind of burned off through the oak. Okay, even in neutral oak. Yeah, it's uh, they. When they get a little bit of oxygen, they start complexing into different compounds. Right. So if, if it had only been in stainless steel, it would probably have some of that. But my feeling is that it would have been uh, a little bit stinky. So you'd have bubblegum and stinky together. I think it's so interesting, you know, and, and folks just, uh, for me, a takeaway um, is that so much is linked to, where, to place, to climate. Um, and certainly if, if you're going to a restaurant, I mean, it's going to a restaurant now, but, um, it's hard to figure out what you want to buy, especially if you go to a retail store and you're looking kind of, what do I want to drink? What do I favor? Um, and, and, and typically the owner of that retail store, hopefully they're there and, and, and they know their wines. They should. Um, and, and you can talk about climate, you know, cooler climates, more pronounced acidity, firmer fruit flavors, maybe more razor sharp, cleaner focused. And then the warmer climates, like the Primatima di Maduria, um, where it's just more relaxed and more plump and more wide, less vertical expression, more horizontal. Um, and you can kind of pick, pick your palate, pick your place, pick your meal based off of that. Um, just wanted to make that little connection because uh, little connections like that, I think are really can lead us to the right bottle, um, which is important. question about when you're making wine like how often it sounds like you taste it sort of regularly yes you got it yeah so how often are you doing that like i don't like i never really realized that people were like sitting there going oh this is doing this let's do this during the wine making process yeah, yeah exactly oh constantly Many times, if if it's if it's something that's uh, that I'm worried about, or something that's a new three four times a day, because it, it can change every every few hours. If it's wow. something that's a little more like the Barbera, you know, I've been making that for a while. It's pretty predictable. It's pretty linear. There's not a whole lot of tannin to worry about. And then I'll just I'll pull a sample out of the tank 
every morning. I, I kind of know where that one's going. Uh, something like Sangiovese is much more got to be on it. There's a lot of tannin. There's a lot of acid. You're trying to balance things. Um, and you just kind of learn over time that, you know, it's a little too tannic now, but after two years in barrel, it'll be just right. So there's a lot of sort of seeing into the future that it's hard to explain, but you just have to do it and kind of accumulate that knowledge. It's like cooking is the same thing. You know, the difference between a four hour braise and a 12 hour braise, you lose some things, you gain some other things. It depends on what you're hoping, what the end goal is. It's pretty cool. Yeah. What's your, what's your, like, what, what grape gives you, keeps you up at night? Sagrantino, Rafosco. I knew it. I knew it was Sagrantino. Yeah. I'm, yeah. For multiple reasons. Um, mainly just alcohol versus tannin on that one. Yeah, and, and Fosco, I'm not sure that I understand what it wants to do in our location. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't understand it yet. So that keeps Walk me up. A strange little grape. Have you ever thought about Teraldigo? Yeah, actually, um, I feel like that's a very. I've never. I've, I've tasted some Rufoscos, but I don't know. They go from cola to to, to flat cola. But I mean, uh, yeah. Teraldigo. I've come across them. Awesome Teraldigos. Teraldigo is a native grape of uh, northeastern Italy um, in the areas of Trentino and Friuli. Trentino native, but also plays in Friuli. And the Veneto, the Veneto in a big way. Sorry, go ahead. But oddly, it can take some heat. It actually, it, it can do well in some California climates. Oh, I've never and, tasted a Teraldigo from California. Cool, cool. I've had a couple not so great ones from Central Valley. But uh, there, there are a couple producers, uh, somebody in Dry Creek, uh, I can't remember the name, they have one. It's actually quite good. And there's some actually good Sagrantino out there now as well. Yeah, absolutely. Outside of Healdsburg. We'll be tasting one. Yeah. Uh, Pietro, how, how many different kinds of grapes are you growing? 14. 14? Yeah, okay. 14, yeah. Some yeah. things are just a hundred vines. Like I have a hundred Grenache, a hundred yeah. Franc, a hundred Petit Syrah. But mm -hmm. uh, the other 11 are all Italian varietals. So yeah, each do one you, has its own complex that it gives. Yeah. Me, so. <laughs> do you, do you have a favorite grape? If I had to drink one Italian grape every day, it would probably be Sangiovese. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I agree. Yeah, me too. <laughs> Yeah, it just, it, it hits all those, you know, we can't do Pinot, we're too warm for it, it's right. too challenging. Sangiovese is kind yeah. of on the same spectrum, but in a more robust framework. Yeah, so, interesting. Wow. That, at least that's my, my thought on it. But, but other things are great too, Grenache, you know, I wish I had more Cab Franc, I'd like to be playing with that more. Mm -hmm. um, I wish I had more Negro Amaro so we could make some really wacky, weird Negro Amaro rosé. Oh, wow. Rosés. Wow. That's one that I, I would really like to dedicate some to rosé, mm -hmm. but we just don't mm -hmm. have that much, and uh, it's doing pretty well. So, got to put the production where it sells. Uh -huh. Paul, Paul knows that I, I kind of have a thing for these funny little grapes from different areas. Mm -hmm. yep. My. 
I think I just finished it off. It was uh, one I had never come across until I met Paul. Is a Cesanese from oh, yeah. outside Rome. Boy, I just finished that off the other night. I, I really like that. Yeah, that's one that just came across my radar a couple of years ago. Yeah. I'm glad to see that that's a, a recently yeah. rescued yeah. outlier. We need more. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. Funny, you say Cabernese, it makes me think Cabernet Franc sometimes. Mm -hmm. oh. Yeah, I could see but, that. I got to say, man, I think your wine is singing right now. Um, for me, my particular style is more the Muffini, um, but I think mm -hmm. just, just if, to put all three glasses up against each other, I, I think the premium material has got is showcasing the most oh, complexity. I'm enjoying it. They probably all have it. I don't have the, the middle one, but they, I'm sure the, the personality is unique. They're all different, yeah. But yeah, I, I think Sanye mm. is, is really uh, something else. Good Sanye. Folks, if you like the, this Prima Materia style rosé, Sanye, um, if you like bubbles, I, I urge you, it's going to cost you like an extra 30 bucks on top of a, a 50 bucks. <laughs> is what champagne costs, but if you're willing to do it, um, boy, it is a special experience. How do you, how, how do you spell Sanye? S-A-I-G-N-E-E. -E. And there's a little accent, a G over the first E. Oh, I, I, oh, I, yeah, oh, I almost got it. Okay. Sanye, okay. Got it. Mm -hmm. Sanye. Well, I would be I, I I would be happy to continue drinking all three of these. I must say, they're all winners. Yeah, they're all winners in their way. They're tasty, aren't they? Yeah, I'm really enjoying the whole thing. Yeah, rosé. I've never really enjoyed rosé until I got to California. I've never had to think critically about it before in my career as a sommelier. It's like if they say you want rosé. It's like okay. I got one in some rosé, you know. <laughs> I don't like think about appellation and expression as much, but man, rosé is good <laughs> in the wine. Cool. Any other thoughts about these wines? Can we go around and 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 say what our wine of the night was? We didn't do that last time. It's something I I, I like to do. <laughs> Uh, where everyone uh, says which wine was your oh spoke to you the most it doesn't have to be a wine that you liked the most but which one spoke to you the most um sometimes a wine of the night can be one that challenged you might not be one that you want to take home with you but a one that challenged you um so let's go around uh who wants to start kevin can we start with your crew sure yeah the one in the middle changes the Madure one Cool. Uh, great. And I think I think uh, you broke up a little bit there, but I think you said the first one you liked. Yes, the third. Yes, the first, the first one. one. The third. Got it. Cool. Great. Great. 
Who's next? Dana? <laughs> bring it on. Looks, I like the low lighting mode. You guys have like, uh, have we moved into red wine? <laughs> it's, it's the smoke. No, that's smoke. Uh, I think when I started, I was really drawn to the um, strawberry one, the second one. Okay. Like that, that was pretty striking for me. But as the evening has worn on, uh, oh, don't do that. <laughs> Oh, As the evening has worn on, sorry, um, I I am tending to like as a uh, sort of, a, I guess, the longer drinker is the prima materia. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of t- can can follow the evening into night a little bit more. Yeah. 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 Very cool. Mary, what are your thoughts? Enjoy them all. And I- Cool. Oh, I'm sorry. Wait. The um, rest of you, the, uh, hold on one second. Well, there. Um, what, what about the rest of you there? I'm sorry. Yep. I'm sorry. I'm, and I'm not. I didn't. And Kevin, I didn't catch the other two in your group as well. I apologize. I'm just jumping around. <laughs> yes, my daughter Tess actually was upset. Called the Aka. She really likes that one. Gotcha. The Aka sound, sounds good. Cool. We have a dirty group of favorites. <laughs> All the bottles are represented. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Good. And Dana, what about what about the ones in the background? That's right. Come forward. <laughs> I'm gonna see where I am. I'm good. So okay. Alex, Alex, my husband likes the Prima Materia uh, okay. mostly. Um, because it's it's closest to what he enjoys, which is uh, a a redder wine. He's he's not much for white wines or even light color, so okay. that's closest for him. And then um, I really enjoyed the second one, the Puglia wine. Uh, but I'm I'm as as Dana said, kind of moving into the evening. This one, the third one, the Prima Materia, also is really nice and. I keep thinking that I would like to have this with barbecue. Yeah. yeah. Is that is that weird? No. Barbecue totally overpower, but it just seems like just it's light enough and crisp enough to be something that would it would it would relate really well. Let me. What's your name? Suzanne. Suzanne. Let me tell you. You know, not not every wine pairing has to be a wine pairing. And I, I learned that early on. Like sometimes a wine. It just needs to, sometimes if it just cleans the palate, it's yeah. done its job. It doesn't need to magically sit next to the textures and the aromas and clean the salt, but aromatize the rose water. None of that bullshit. Sometimes like just, just a nice, clean, refreshing wine to like clean away like barbecue sauce and like corn. <laughs> I don't even eat barbecue very often, but I really kind of crave it with yeah. Embrace that. I love it. I love it. That's that's a good pairing. To me, that's a successful pairing. Great barbecue. Yeah, absolutely. You gotta figure you Pietro, you gotta figure out a um um an actual pairing though. What barbecue item would you have with this? Not right now on the spot, but just something to something to mull over. Yeah, that's social media. Yeah. Yeah. Mary, I apologize. Give us your no, no. your your, your uh, wine of the night, my dear. <laughs> well, 
all of them. I think they they all have a place in the pantheon. Good. Um, <laughs> Give me one. I think though, so if you want me to do a one, two, three, I am really enjoying Pietro's wine. Yeah. I wasn't sure I would. It's a blend, and you know, I kind of am obsessed with the single varietal. Um, but I am really enjoying it with a lovely Roman sheep cheese. Mm. And then I think I like the, um, the Primitivo. Mm -hmm. And then I, well, I also enjoyed the Aglianico. It, yeah. They all have their place. But for tonight, Pietro. Oh, thank you. First place. Too kind. <laughs> I'm really enjoying it. Thank Mary. you. Is that that Roman cheese? Is it is it firm or is it spreadable? It's a soft. It's it, soft. It's soft. It's, okay. it, well, semi-spreadable. Yeah, it's semi. Semi-spreadable. It squishes. It squishes. Okay. It squishes. Reminds me of Cochota. Okay. Yeah. And Daniel, but, yeah. Bring us home. Yeah. Oh, um, you know the, um. I really, I really thought that number two was going to win it for me, but as number three opened up, it definitely, I think, I think they both have very different purposes. I think that I'd be interested in having number three with dinner, but maybe starting with number two in the backyard, like it says on the, you know, the pairing sheet that was sent with, um, I don't think the number one matched my my interest in, in smell, which was very interesting, but it might also be the most memorable out of the three. Like I got a lot of that acidity on the palate um, or on the nose, and that makes it really memorable, but maybe not as, as interesting to taste. Ah, great feedback. Excellent. Daniel, top that. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I, I, I'm a little confused on the numbers. Um, I, the the premium materia really stood out for me because it seemed more red on the spectrum, and that was kind of a question I came to this with. I've been having a couple rosés lately, and they always just skew toward white. They're like white in character, and they're just like there's some little thing there, and this is more like kind of coming from the other side. And yeah. it was a surprise to me to to experience that because more uh, it's just not like others. No. Um, so that's really um, that's what stood out to me. I, uh, um, and then otherwise, it also just has such a, a, an amazing smell. I, uh, the nose is really like I, I, I smelled all three of them, and every time I smelled this this one, it was just like I kind of wanted to keep going at it. You know, it, just, it smells like Jolly Ranchers. It's got this like I, you, I, you guys said bubble gum, but I, I think of like yeah, just candy or something hard candy, yeah. and it made me want to just kind of go in deeper. I really liked it. Yeah, Daniel, I think you've, you've discovered a wine, but you've also might have discovered a, a production method that you favor, which is the sanye, that method of blend of bleeding grapes. And yeah, yeah, we'll be talking. <laughs> <laughs> cool, Pietro. Without any, without any naked bias mm -hmm. at all, what was your favorite wine of the night? <laughs> Oh, I like the Maffini. I always like whatever is the opposite of what I do. <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> and for me, the Maffini, going back to an earlier comment I made, I, I feel like it shows an interesting face of Ionico that I might not have seen otherwise. Mm. Sort of a, a, a more uh, naked yeah. presentation of it. So, so I enjoy that. Pure, it may not be the most like hedonistically pleasurable of the three, but I find it interesting, really interesting. Mm -hmm. yeah. I agree. And it's purity. So. Yeah, there's there's a, a lot of com there's some complexity to the maffini and for me the maffini room temperature is just right it's just right mm -hmm. uh, yeah, it's it's a little, little cool little chill to it but not much yeah yeah the cold temperatures can sometimes mask things things that you and want. I will say since I uh, mentioned just breathing and air rosé is not quite like red wine since you have those anti anthocyanins and other things in there a lot of rosés do actually need air to sort of get up and start moving in a way that white wines don't. Um, so as far as, uh, just in my experience, especially if they're made kind of reductively and are, right, right. it seems to me like the darker they are, the more air they need. And there's this tendency to, you know, we're shielding them away from air. We're not making them like a red wine with lots of air in the process, trying to soften the tannins. Right. So generally with darker rosés, I will want to open them 20, 30 minutes before before I'm ready to drink them. Oh, I never thought oh, of that. I, I don't know if that's true. That could just be my... No, I, I think oh. if, it, if that works for you, that there's that's interesting. some validity there. Uh, Kevin had asked me that, uh, a very similar question to that at the beginning. Um, and for me, you know, I, I find that rosés are made to be drunk fresh and young and as is. Um, but I actually, you know, when I was answering that, I was thinking more about vintage age and less about actual pulling the cork and letting it breathe in the glass a little bit. Um, and I think that's, although I'm hard pressed to come across an Italian wine that I wouldn't decant. Um, I love these little decanters. They're my favorite because this is, um, <laughs> uh, this is, uh, it's small enough where I decant, I often will decant a white wine. Um, an Italian white, Falangina to Roero Arnese, mm -hmm. just to give it a moment to kind of breathe a little bit. Um, so, Kevin, I stand, I, you know, I, I stand half corrected there a bit. You know, I think, I think, the, Pietro, the, dark, the darker the color of the rosé, the more time you like to give it in the glass? R roughly, possibly. Roughly, yeah, that's interesting. Cool, cool, cool. Mm -hmm. um, I've had one... Rosé champagne that I decanted tableside in a crystal decanter, and I remember tasting it. And I remember that improved it so much, which doesn't make sense to me because it's a bubbly and it's champagne. <laughs> but it really spoke, and it was an older style Sanye <clears throat> method. I forget who the producer oh. was years ago. Sometimes that stuff spends five years in barrel. It's crazy. It's true. Amazing. Cool. I still don't understand the world of champagne. You know, the sh world of champagne, <laughs> it, it's something that I think we can study until we're old. Um, you know, oh. there, there, there are Pietro, a lot of you missed You missed Paul's champagne class. Mm -hmm. Oh, you yeah. Missed Paul, you, you missed Paul's champagne class. It was the, one of the highlights oh. of my life. I'll have to do another <laughs> one. Yeah. It was a lot of champagne. I do 11. 
so we, we it, was a lot, <laughs> it was good. It was good. It was good. It was good. It was a lot of champagne. But you t- we tasted all the styles. So Blanc de Blanc, Blanc de Noir. We tasted Pinot Monte <laughs> on its own. Uh, we tasted this uh, special club. Oh. We tasted two Tete de Cuvées. We tasted Sagne Method Rosé. Yep. And we tasted uh, Crow Grand Cuvée, which is, you know, a little more mature, a little more opulent yeah. style. And uh, the special club was, I think, from 2009. I think it was uh, Gimonet. But yeah, that was a good, that was fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> that, that was good. God, God willing, we will do it again one day. We will. Champagne, you know, sparkling is, is so special, especially in Champagne. And I think just to speak to what Pierre, Pietro was talking about a little bit about, you know, not quite getting it. Um, and I don't think I'm ever going to quite get it. Um, but I, the magic in Champagne is very often what goes on inside that bottle um, once it's been corked, foil, or cork, you know, and, and the cage and foil and all that stuff. It's that slow breakdown of yeast cells called autolysis. Um, and, and we just don't know what happens inside that bottle, but we do know that after X amount of time, the, the breakdown of those dead yeast cells um, will produce aromas that you'll never forget. Um, I, I think of 88 Krug, and I'll never forget the taste of that champagne on my palate. And I was tasting it after I brushed my teeth that night. I was sitting in bed tasting it on my lips. Like, that stuck around. Um, but it's that, that magical process that happens inside that bottle after two, three, five, ten, fifteen years. It's incredible. Um, but you just don't know. It's, <laughs> you can't track it. Yeah. Pietro, would you ever get into sparkling wine? Certainly not where you are. Uh, I would. I would love to. Um, that would be a whole other. Yeah, that's all. It's one of those things. Like when I was, you know, when I was a chef, I'm convinced that knowing how to do a thousand banquet meals makes you better at doing one tasting. Yep. I think. I think the 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 precision and long sight of sparkling winemaking is. Um, it would be a whole new set of tools to be able to use in red wine making, just having that additional area of knowledge. So I would love to do it at some point. I just, I don't even know how to approach it or, you know, maybe, maybe I can find somebody to partner up with on a project, but yeah, I would love to take that direction. I think Salos said it was about, uh, it's, it's really all about making a really good base wine. You just add the sparkle. That makes sense. <laughs> cool. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Thank you, everyone. This was really fun. Yeah, that was fun. It was great. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. It's lovely. Great conversation. Um, I just want to raise a glass to Pietro. Um, I think it's yep. great. Absolutely. Yeah. Tonight for uh, for a very second. nice. Oh, this is really really good stuff. Um, so salute. Salute. Well, for coming. Hello. Uh, we will have, uh, please follow us on social media and all that good stuff because we're going to be ramping up San Giovese, a very special, uh, special discussion. Right. I'm really excited for that one. Um, we're going to be fitting Pietro's wine uh, next to uh, San Giovese Grosso from Montalcino, mm. next to uh, Prugnolo Gentile from Montepulciano, mm. 
Ooh. is San Giovetto from Chianti Classico. Oh, nice. Very nice. Mm. Wonderful. That's a good set. Yeah, it should be fun. Sounds good. So it's all San Giovese all night. It might be a four pack. <laughs> Sounds like it's going to oh be. Oh, my a God. <laughs> oh, my God. Are you up to it? Oh, okay. oh right. Tell your friends. <laughs> I'm glad I got friends. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Mary. Down to a T. Ciao, everyone. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Thank we'll you Paul, you Pietro, everyone. Cheers. Thank yeah. you. Cheers. Thank you all. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.